The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg all met at a course that they were helping to provide at Naropa, the Tibetan Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And over the next five years, they began to offer retreats. Uh, they traveled around the country. They would do retreats in hostels, in churches, in people's basements. Uh, you know, wherever there was a small sangha that invited them, they would come and provide the retreat. <clears throat> These were really the pioneering days. Uh, traveling, hopefully more than one together, but sometimes just one if there weren't very many people. And they did this on a Donna basis. This was how they supported themselves. And by about 1978, they realized that they needed a place, that it was one thing to be a resource for people and offer the facilitation of a retreat. But it was a whole nother thing to have a center where people would come and participate in a retreat, participate in classes, uh, be supported through having food provided and having lodging. And so the Insight Meditation Society began about 1978 when they found this retreat center uh, that was a Catholic monastic retreat center and had been empty for a while. And they bought it, I think, for some incredibly small amount of money, $150,000 or something like that. And... Uh, began using volunteer labor to fix it up and had the first retreats starting about 1979. It's a wonderful place to experience. I did a six-week retreat there, and uh, I, I just have to say it really convinced me that place is important. Uh, up until then, I had the idea that your practice is in your heart. Wherever you are with your heart, that's where your practice is. And, you know, I think there's something to that. But there's also a, a real power and a real um, durability to having people together, to being able to meditate together, to study the Dharma, to share ideas, to support each other. And so IMS is kind of the vanguard. Uh, Vipassana practice, of course, started way back. Uh, you can go back 2,500 years or farther, and you can find things like uh, karma and like insight. And meditation, of course, began not 2,500 years ago, but... You know, certainly 4,000 years ago, there are documents that uh, confirm that meditation has been a practice for that long. So, here on January 1st, it's kind of fun to think about where did we begin with this practice? You know, what, where was the beginning of Vipassana practice? The Insight Meditation Society is, of course, one milestone. That's when Americans who had studied abroad and had been monastics abroad and had developed their own practice came to the United States and began inspiring others and teaching others. And from that teaching has grown the Insight Meditation Society. You probably have heard of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center, in Woodacre, California. It's the at the Sir Francis Drake exit of 101. You take a left turn, and Woodacre is off about seven or eight miles. 
uh, over the hills and in this beautiful valley. <clears throat> and Spirit Rock is another place where Vipassana practitioners can go and be supported and practice in retreat settings. It's wonderful to have these resources. And yet, all of us are practitioners charged with the responsibility of no matter where we are and no matter what we're doing, no matter what the outside circumstances, of being present for just what is as our practice. So in a way, it's easier to go to Spirit Rock or the Insight Meditation Society. Everybody there knows about Vipassana practice, knows how important silence is and how to be respectful, uh, knows the value of good nutritious food. Um, there are Dharma talks. I mean, there's just lots of opportunity to have your practice supported. It's like being a little baby and cradled and having love and support just right there. And so it gives you the opportunity of really going deeply into your practice, going deeply into uh, what comes. Lots of things come. Some find that it's a physical experience, that just the, the pain of sitting is a major challenge. Knees, ankles, backs. For some, it's memories, things that happened in childhood, things in our families that may have been wonderful or may have been particularly difficult. Either way, it can be very, very challenging to let go of prior experience, prior conditioning, and to just be present in the moment for what is now. That's the practice, and that's what releases us so that we can deeply be just who we are. So these two places, Spirit Rock and IMS, are physical representations of what you would call the new beginning of Vipassana practice in the United States. So in this year, 2009, I think about 20 years ago, when Spirit Rock had the uh, amazing good fortune to get in touch with, I think it was the Nature Conservancy, uh, anyway, a, na a nature organization that had land that they had no use for. And so they worked out a deal with the founders of Spirit Rock, and they were able to purchase this land, a beautiful, I think it's 150 acres or something like that, a beautiful piece of land in a little valley all by itself off um, Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, the main road, away from town, and just really a perfect place. And over the years, over that 20 years, since 1989, has grown accommodations for a hundred and some yogis, a beautiful retreat center, uh, really exquisite, um, just uh, inspiring, a building that's inspiring. So we have those two. And then this place that we're sitting in this evening sprang from Spirit Rock. Jack Cornfield, the founder of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, was in turn a teacher for our teacher, Gil Fronstall. And Gil studied with Jack. And in 1990, when I first began my Vipassana practice, 
Gill was uh, kind of one of a number of people that would meet in a person's living room. And we had a little sitting group in the living room of Dr. Howard Mudelman, who it turned out was the surgeon for my first wife who was suffering from breast cancer. And he performed a mastectomy for my first wife. So we got to meet Howard. And from that little sitting group came more and more interest, more and more people, finally moving to some sites and churches. The prior site to this site was the Friends Meeting House in Palo Alto. And then we moved here about, does anybody know how many years ago? Five, six years ago? Six now. And we've just completed the renovation of this building. Isn't it beautiful? I just, it just is marvelous to look around. And I was part of the crew that came in on day one for this building. We had our wrecking bars and our sledgehammers. And we came in and took out everything that was here that was kind of of the past. And over the years, we've been making it our own now. I remember one of my colleagues uh, working on a very large iron cross that was outside that wall over there. And he got up on a ladder with a, a um, hacksaw and hacked down this. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my goodness, this may not be an ominous uh, thing. Let's hope not. It's, you know, I mean, you think about desecrating the cross and so forth. But, uh, you know, the people that sold us this church were done with it. They were ready for it to be ours. And so we hacksawed off the cross and we came in and we took all the pews. There were these beautiful, heavy oak pews all lined up in here. And uh, every one of them, I mean, there were hundreds of pounds, each one. And we had to get all these pews out and get them disposed of. And then we had this, uh, this kind of crazy floor uh, that ended up being squeaky for years and years and isn't squeaky anymore. It's so wonderful to be able to sit and have people walk in and you don't have. So lovely experience having a center where we can gather and start our new year together. So it's interesting to think of new beginnings, the beginnings of Vipassana movement in the United States, the beginnings of the Insight Meditation Society facility in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the Spirit Rock facility in Woodacre, the Insight Meditation Center facility here in Redwood City. New beginnings, and uh, the beginning in this building was right around this time. We purchased the church in the fall, and by the time we were finally able to get in, it was coming up close on Christmas, and the target, the goal, was to be able to have a sitting on New Year's Eve. So that was why we had to make special efforts to get this place converted. And we did. We got pretty much settled, and it looked like a, a new place with a fresh purpose on that New Year's Eve. And since then, we've had this facility. So new beginnings, appropriate for us to reflect on our practice, not only kind of the collective practice of Vipassana in the United States, but our practice. So I'd just like to invite you silently to just notice what it was that helped you begin your practice. What was it? Maybe it was more than one event or something that a person said. Or maybe it was a dawning of a dharmic moment that came to you. 
So just reflect to yourself. Notice any details about that, that beginning, that auspicious moment in your Vipassana practice. We've all been blessed by those who came before us. As Vipassana practitioners, we acknowledge the importance of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha in our practice and in our lives. The person that we refer to as the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, lived 2,500 years ago, but he's not who we refer to when we say the Buddha. We refer to more a sense of awareness that we all have the ability to be fully present for what is. And as we're fully present for what is in our lives and the lives of our culture and our country and our families and our work, we discover the Dharma. One of the wonderful teachings of the Buddha is that everything we need unfolds in our life. We don't need to seek enlightenment by going to faraway places. We don't need to seek direction from others. That everything that we need to be fully free in our lives and fully realized in our lives will come to us as we are just present for what is. So we don't have to go seeking. We just have to be aware and alert. Curious. So the awareness that we refer to by saying the Buddha, the wisdom, the insights that we refer to collectively as the Dharma, And then the Sangha, the collection of what we call spiritual friends or spiritual colleagues, people who are on a journey with us and share our journey and support us in our journey. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, three pillars of our rich Vipassana practice. So just to read once again, Trumpa's, what I think are very insightful words about new beginnings. He says, there are times to cultivate and create when you nurture your world and give birth to new ideas and ventures. There are times of flourishing and abundance when life feels in full bloom energized and expanding. And there are times of fruition when things come to an end. They have reached their climax and must be harvested before they begin to fade. And finally, of course, there are times that are cold and cutting and empty times when the spring of new beginnings seems like a distant dream. Those rhythms in life are natural events. They weave into one another as day follows night, bringing not messages of hope and fear, but messages of how things are. The Dalai Lama was asked for a message of hope. Possibly at a time like this, new beginnings and so on. He said, oh, you deserve so much more than hope. I don't want to limit you by giving you a message of hope. And then he spoke about being aware, being alert, being present for just what is.
So I think as we begin this new year, we have a sense of trepidation maybe or a sense of anticipation. But I invite us all to not be concerned about what is coming, to anticipate it, to think about it, to perseverate about it, to be working in our hearts and our minds about what's coming, but to dedicate ourselves to the heart of Vipassana practice, just being present for what is. Nothing more is required of us. Everything will be taken care of if we are present for what is, we are most prepared for making an appropriate response. And in fact, that is, as human beings, that is either as good as we can do or maybe only what we can do is to make our best response. I've done a lot of uh, backpacking and being in the wilderness. And often when there's a tragedy or a disaster or something challenging comes up in the wilderness, this ability to just be present doesn't happen. People get nervous or excited or fearful. And I've been part of search and rescue teams where we've gone in to rescue somebody or we've gone in after a disaster. And, of course, everybody wants to know what caused it and what could have been done better and so on. And the finding so frequently is that resources were left untouched, that the person or people who were trying to resolve the challenge in the wilderness did the best they could. But there were things that could have been done better. There were things that could have helped them that they didn't take advantage of. Sometimes they get into a a sort of a downward spiral. There was an instance in Oregon where a family was driving through the mountains on a wintry night. And their car broke down and... Rather than kind of think through the resources they had, the uh, father of the family quickly threw on a, a few clothes, not as many clothes as he needed, and headed out to get help, thinking that probably it was only a matter of minutes or hours away. And he wandered for three or four days and ended up dying in a ravine Uh, of exposure, his wife and children were rescued, ultimately. They stayed in the car on the road, and somebody came along finally with a snowplow and found them. And unfortunately, not everybody was there. The father had launched off in a rush of who knows what, enthusiasm, Uh, overcoming fear, meeting the challenge. So I think that's a good reminder for all of us that wherever we are in our lives and in our practice, things will happen. It's going to be a snowy night as we're trying to get somewhere and we get stuck. Or a relationship that we had counted on changes unexpectedly. A job that we had depended on maybe doesn't pan out as we had thought. Something will come along and cut the legs off that stool that we're sitting on and leave us suspended in midair. And it's our responsibility and our opportunity as practitioners to be fully alert, to be curious about what's happening, and to just be present to just be present.
then whatever action is appropriate will be understood, it will be clarified, we'll see, we'll have, we'll have the best beginning that we possibly can to go to the next step. So that's the invitation on this first night of the year is to practice beginning every night of the year, every day of the year. Our wonderful teacher in the Bay Area, Suzuki Roshi, who founded the Zen Center in San Francisco, wrote a book famously on beginner's mind. And it's a wonderful book. And his thought was that in the mind of experts, there is great complexity. Uh, there is lots of material. But there's no room for being fully aware and fully alert to just what is. The expert is relating to something he has learned before, adopted before, practiced before, whatever. But not to just what is. Now, I'm not saying that all experts are like that. There's probably some superior experts that can have understood a lot from the past and still be present for what is. But in our lives and in our Vipassana practices, that is all we need to do is just be present. So let's just sit for a couple of minutes, get ourselves into our sitting posture. Just be present for what is. I just invite us all to notice how we feel in our hearts. Our heart as a wonderful communicator doesn't necessarily need words. But gives us a sense of aliveness and a sense of the deep connection with what's present, what's here. Just notice what's present in your heart. And I'll end this sitting by reading just a little bit from Pema Chodron, who wrote The Wisdom of No Escape and The Path of Loving Kindness. Loving kindness toward ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. It's not about, I'll be a much better person sometime. Or, if I could just meditate and calm down, I'd be a better person. No, loving kindness toward ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. It means that we can still be crazy after all these years. We can be full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to try to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. The ground of practice is you or me or whoever we are right now, just as we are. That's the ground. That's what we study. That's what we come to know with tremendous curiosity and interest. Well, you're here on a Thursday evening. <clears throat> Our Thursday evening tradition is to invite people who are here to engage in some kind of exchange. A couple things happen from that. One is that we get to know each other better and we can be a more effective sangha 
We can be present for each other as well as our own selves. And uh, the other is that it's just a lot more fun for the teacher, for the person that's giving the Dharma talk, because I've heard myself, but I haven't heard you. (laughs) So I would like to invite us to begin just by thinking what started our practice. And let's just have a few minutes of sharing, those of us who would like to, about what did start our practice. Was it a person? Was it a book? What really got us to put our butts on the cushion and be present for what comes? It's not an easy thing to do. It's not the kind of thing that we naturally fall into. We sort of have to work at it and make it happen. So what got us to make the beginning of our Vipassana practice happen? So Maureen has a microphone. She'll pass it around. Who will, who will share with us this evening? And if you don't mind, just give us your name first and then... Hello. My name is Paul. And uh, this is my first Vipassana practice. And I'd like to thank my wife. Hey! <laughs> Actually, I'm, I have a bit of a history of um, my parents. I was born in an ashram in uh, 72 in San Diego. But uh, I have a background in you know, Eastern interest, I guess. And uh, um, some time ago, I took a meditation class. Uh, I think it was Yogananda. And uh, that was very interesting, but I haven't done anything since then, so my wife encouraged me to come on down. And that's basically it. That's how I got here. <laughs> wow, that's good. So. Well, the natural uh, thing to wonder about is what got her to her practice. <laughs> <laughs> Would you share? What you hey, let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. Um, my name is Darlene. Hi, and Darlene. Hi. Uh, I saw, when I first moved to San Francisco eight years ago, um, I, I was there a couple years, and uh, I saw a, a documentary uh, about, and some of you may have seen it, about Vipassana in um, a prison in India and uh, using uh, meditation to kind of help prisoners, uh, you know, find some sense of peace or um, it was a pr- program that was very successful. And um, I found that was I saw that with a friend, and I thought that was inspiring. And we started going to um, meditation um, in San Francisco, which was part of the Vipassana community, um, in a, at a, a Unitarian church. So I went for a while, and my husband and I moved down to Redwood City, and we haven't. We kind of just discovered that there was this inside meditation center here, so we're looking forward to joining the community. So you were part of Eugene's uh, group? Yeah, I used to go to Eugene's uh-huh. um, sittings. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I get up there every once in a while because he has special events and special teachers. And uh-huh. That Unitarian Church is really a marvelous place. It is, it is. It wasn't long ago that the uh, Zen Center in San Francisco had a series of speakers where they would come to the Unitarian Church like every month or something like that. Were you part of that? Do you no, no. I um, I, you, I went to the one on, um, I can't remember the street, up on the Unitarian. Do you know the street? No, and then there was another meeting um, with Howard. Um, Howard Noodleman. Howard uh, no, Cohn. No, 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 Howard Cohn. Yeah, at yeah. the in the mission too. So right. I went to both of those, but yeah. I wasn't. Yeah, it's a it's a there's a it's a big, huge group at that yeah. church too. Thank you for sharing that. Isn't it amazing that we have all these resources here? Right. Uh, it's just such a gift. I mean, we don't have to go to Barry, Massachusetts, to have really excellent teachers and retreats, opportunities, and inspiring events, and so on. Right. Great, Darlene. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Anybody else? This is helpful for all of us to hear how we started. How did we begin our Vipassana practice? My name is Ed, and I took Gil's intro class about two or three years ago. And um, I think what brought me here was just 
the whole spiritual quest thing and trying everything from, you know, Catholic monasticism and going to different retreat centers and centering prayer and all that. But I never um, felt the intensity that I felt from the just kind of the blank slate of Vipassana practice. And so um, that's what's been keeping me um, in the practice the last two or three years. And it's just uh, been profound in terms of its effect, in, in my opinion. Um, and my wife might have to have something to say about that as well. <laughs> but just uh, really, some people can attest. Yeah. <laughs> no, just I know. Um, so it's just been wonderful, and I'm so mm-hmm. thankful. And I, I just came back from Spirit Rock uh, a few weeks mm-hmm. ago um, for the four night retreat, and that was my second Insight retreat, which was, um, you know, very very powerful for me and uh, many others and uh, I just can't say enough about it how thankful I am and how I just want to rededicate myself to the practice you know for the coming year and for the rest of my life so wow just before you pass that on let me ask you to say just a little bit more about what you meant by the blank slate of the positive practice just nature. I think that's, a, that's a really good phrase but yeah what what uh, I think it's that? it's just nature it's instead of placing any dogma or prescriptions on, I mean, there are certain, you know, things you do in Vipassana, just watching, noticing the breath. And I love Gil's noticing, you know, it's not, you know, my, he, I love his comment about how mindfulness gets overplayed a lot, you know. Well, I do noticing practice, I don't do mindfulness, you know. <laughs> I just notice things. And it's just very natural, you know. There's nothing forced about it, there's nothing mm. contrived. Mm. And, um, those that aspect of it is um, I've always been drawn to a natural way of being, or I try to be, because I figure you make more space for what naturally will come out, whatever the situation is, whether it be in yourself or with other people or in work or whatever it is. Um, just kind of get out of the way <laughs> and let yeah. nature take its course, and so that's what I really see happening in in this practice. Oh, that's really well said. Uh, one of the phrases that Gil uses, I think, is it was very helpful to me. It was kind of in that same vein. He said, uh, meditation, Vipassana meditation practice is the only thing that you can engage in or you're not trying to change something. It's interesting to think about. All of our lives, we're trying to get somewhere or do something or tick off another piece of our to-do list. And to just be present and not try to do things, not try to be a better meditator, not try to be insightful or wise or, you know, I mean, the invitation is just to be present for what is in its essence, in its root, uh, as you say, nature, in 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 the nature of things as they are. And from that, then, we have the opportunity to be free, ultimately, and freer along the way. So, wow, thanks so much for sharing that. That's great. And did you mean to say that your wife is here? She, we flipped a coin uh, to who was going to come tonight. And uh, actually, she won. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm here because... Um, the kids, well, no, the kids got in a, I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old, and they got pretty zany at the end of it, and she's like, you better just go yeah. stick around and <laughs> do some damage control. So. Well, we'll have to hear her side of it some other time. Then. Right. Yeah. Just one other quote is, yeah. the yoke is easy and the burden is light. That's been with me the last mm-hmm. several months as this mm-hmm. practice is just, it's like uh it just allows life to be lived easier, uh, less um, a lighter fashion, and that's been just delightful. Nice. Thanks so much. Anybody else? Yeah, I see a hand back there. Just making sure this is on. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, and your name? So, Kaveri. Kaveri. So when I think about what brought me to this practice, you know, initially, superficially, what comes to mind is suffering. Um, after the birth of my daughter, 
I think I had a hallmark picture of what I thought that would be like. And then when the sleep deprivation and my own life changed, um, it was hard. And I think that I had taken Gil's intro class about a year and a half ago, and nothing has ever made so much sense to me about acceptance and just living and observing what is. And I think that over time, it's also become a deep psychology for me as well because I understand my patterns. I understand why I sometimes react to certain things instead of responding in a certain way. Like, for example, um, probably one of the biggest insights for me lately has been when my husband wants to spend time with family or with friends and not me, or my daughter wants to be with Papa instead of me, or my mom, um, who had left when I was younger for long story reasons, but now has come back into our life. And um, I think about, wow, she's choosing to be with someone else besides me. I realize that all those times, there's a little girl inside me saying, "What you know? look at what these people did to you. Look at what these people did. Aren't you going to do something about it? And the funny thing is, um, when you had just said, be present for what is, I, that resounds with me so strongly more than it ever did because I can see that now, that whenever someone does something and that initial response comes up to react and I feel loneliness or sadness like this tight thing in my throat, the physical sensations, I can almost just see that um, there's a person inside me saying, do something about it, do something about it, fix it, change it. And I don't have to do anything about it. And it's, it's the greatest freedom. Wow. <laughs> well said. Really well said. So you came through a life of suffering, which we all have. I mean, to be honest, I think probably everybody would have to say that there was some element of suffering at the beginning of our Vipassana practice. Otherwise, why would we go to the effort of putting our butt on the cushion and just observing? <laughs> but to stay with it and then to get to that place that you described where the suffering can kind of be transformed and you see that it's not your suffering. It's, it's suffering for sure, but it's not necessarily that you need to have it and you need to do anything about it. Just observe it. Yeah, a lot of times we see that what appeared to be ours and appeared to be painful and suffering really is something that we didn't have anything to do with. As you say, it was some other family member who had something that they were dealing with and things didn't work out as we had hoped. Wow. Kaveri, thank you so much. That was the only other thing I wanted to add to what Ed had said, I was just laughing, actually, because <laughs> we talk about this all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really wonderful. Um, I mean, ideally, I guess it would be nice if both practitioners practice, and though my husband doesn't come, I know that he certainly appreciates and sees a huge change in the way that I can respond rather than react. Um, I'd like to say more often than not, but... I mean, it really improves all of your relationships over time. Mm -hmm. For your kids, too, that's my guess. Huh? Yeah. <clears throat> Great, thanks. Anybody else share about that seminal moment when you began Vipassana, when you took the seat and watched? Ah, Maureen. Lovely. <clears throat> it's not so surprising to me that that I've taken up with Vipassana. Well, I, I'm surprised I've stuck with it. I realized that I'd meditated on my own on and off and learned different techniques. And I had gone maybe with 99 when the Dalai Lama 
spoke at Shoreline and sat with the Dalai Lama for a week at Shoreline, and people there told me how much of a possible was in the area. And that sounds wonderful to me, but I really uncomfortable with large groups of people. The more people are in the room, the more alert I am. So I eventually, you know, I downloaded some of the talks from the center and was with the center. It didn't exist. It was friends meeting in some living room. And I eventually came here. And to my great surprise, I was eventually able to handle the fact that I was in a room with all these other beings. And it was the convenience of um, my husband, I came on Thursday. Thursday was always less popular. And the person who was manager on Thursday was going to go out of town because we were always here to say, well, why don't you go and do this while I'm out of town? So I think making a commitment to make the announcements on Thursday night has really helped me stick with the practice and stick with the fact that I really don't like being in a crowded room. I mean, this is obviously not a crowded room. But, you know, I was able to make it through, you know, literally years of sitting in a room full of people and, you know, blur, blur, blur. You know, examining my own, the state of my own mind. Well, it's been a real benefit to have you being manager for Thursday night. Really, you do a wonderful job, and as you kind of alluded to, it's it's not uh, a night where you can get a lot of people out, usually. And uh, so the, those of us here tonight, I think, are kind of reminds me of Rumi's poem about night travelers. Rumi wrote about how when you travel through the desert at night, there's there's some special quality to just being together. You don't have to do much except just be traveling together through the desert at night. And there's there's a lot that happens. It's a rich experience. So thanks for being a night traveler on Thursday night. Well, I think we're coming close to the end, and I would like to have us do just one last little sit in silence. So let's get ourselves into a sitting posture once again. So it's a traditional way to end a Dharma event, um, a sharing with a sharing of the merit. And I think this is one of the wonderful traditions of Buddhist practice, of the Buddhist tradition. That we say that if anything has resulted of benefit, from our being together or talking together this evening, that in our hearts we wish that it is available to all people everywhere. That we wish for the freedom and the happiness of all beings. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. Wherever they are, whatever their travels, may they be safe. May all beings be healthy and strong. May they enjoy vigorous, full life. May all beings be at ease experiencing a freedom and a depth in living. And may all beings be free, free from greed, hatred, and delusion. 
free from strong attachments, free from views that get fixed, ideas that get ossified, cast in stone. May all beings be free so that our world is a safe place and a nurturing place for all. And just on the first night of the year, I'd like to read a little image. It says, there is a river. Life is like a river. And as soon as you unmoor the boat and you start to enter that river, you end up on a journey. Not all of us have gone to the mouth of that river, but we are all aware in the meditative process, in our Vipassana practice, that the journey exists. So may all beings be safe on their journey. May all beings be happy and healthy and free and strong. And may the benefit of our exchanges this evening reach out and spread and reward all with new beginnings beginning the year, beginning practice, and just beginning whatever we are, just having a beginner's mind, just being open to what is. Tomorrow's another day, a new beginning. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Drive safely on the way home and uh, enjoy this year.